Welcome to this edition of In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. As Illinois' medical marijuana pilot program moves into full implementation, and as the debate over legalization of recreational marijuana continues to gain momentum, an addiction psychiatrist is out with a new handbook that argues against making pot legal in any form. I recently talked with Dr. Ed Gogek about his book, Marijuana Debunked, a handbook for parents, pundits, and politicians who want to know the case against legalization. Well, I'm an addiction psychiatrist. I've been doing this for about 30 years, and I've worked in a lot of jails and prisons and actually homeless clinics and a lot of treatment programs. And that's the main place I'm coming from because I really, when people talk about legalizing drugs, I see the problems that drugs cause all the time. And the other thing that I have that brings me to this is I was a teenage pot smoker. I actually grew up in Decatur, Illinois, and I started at age 17 and smoked pretty heavily for about two years. And that is really part of the reason I wrote this book, because I I know that it affected me. And as I started reading the research, I realized how much it affected me. And I don't want that, you know, right now we've got about 4 million teenagers in this country who are smoking pot pretty regularly, and it's going to harm them permanently from what the research is now showing. And so that's where I'm coming from. That's why I wrote Marijuana Debunked. Nationally, there's this whole discussion about uh, legalizing marijuana in, in you know, California and, and Colorado and some other states have done so to various degrees, but it's still a Schedule One narcotic. Why are we why are we having this debate? Do you think the reason we're having this debate is that there's a whole push to legalize marijuana, and it comes from marijuana users. It comes from marijuana users, and I will tell you, when I was a teenager and I started smoking pot, within months I was talking about legalization. I see this a lot. You know, the book A Child's Garden of Grass actually says grass use smokers are the world's greatest proselytizers, and it really is true. We see this very regularly. People start smoking pot, and very quickly they, they want to legalize it. You know, um, Normal was founded in 1970, which is a time when people had just started smoking marijuana. So uh, the, the push for legalization is coming from a marijuana lobby that basically represents drug users. And that's the push for medical marijuana as well as legalization. There's the doctors groups are not behind medical marijuana. In fact, the physicians groups, the pediatricians, the child psychiatrists, the addiction doctors are all against medical marijuana laws. They don't think they should be passed. They think they're mostly harmful. Uh, the push is all coming from drug users. And that's what you're seeing right now is it's coming from the marijuana lobby, and now it's coming from the marijuana industry. It's not really coming from the general public. In talking with law enforcement and in talking with, even talking with, with some of the scientists, geneticists that are starting to just now kind of dig into the, the genome of, of, of marijuana and all, the, all, the, uh, all of its derivations, um, they all say that it's, 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 it is very dangerous and addictive, especially uh, in, in young users. And, and the law enforcement as well say that when, I ask, when you ask them, what, what do you see as the gateway drugs, they almost always say marijuana and heroin in that, in that order. Right. You see, you know, the, the gateway has been uh, kind of misused. The, the way gateway works is any time a teenager uses any drug, they're going through a developmental process. The brain actually develops around whatever they're doing. So, for example, non-drug. If a teenager spends their time playing guitar, the brain actually develops to be really good at playing guitar. Um, same thing with studying math, anything else. If they are doing drugs, the brain actually develops around that. And it's especially true with marijuana. So people who smoke marijuana in their teen years are anywhere between two and seven times as likely 
to abuse other drugs, other illegal drugs, as adults because they've actually set up their brain to want to do that. And so that's that whole gateway thing. And the other thing is that marijuana actually interferes with teenage brain development in a way that no other drug does. And so that's what we're realizing. People who smoke pot in their teenage years, the heavy users actually lower their IQ, we found by an average of about eight points, which is really significant. But even people who use occasionally, the most important thing is how young did they use. So under 18 is a problem, and I fall into that category. Under 16 is really a problem. And these are the people who, and they do much worse in school. You know, they've got Under 16, they've got twice the dropout rate. But also, even as adults, they earn less. They're not as happy with their lives. They're more likely to end up on welfare, unemployed. And these are even people who quit smoking, but they used as a teenager because it permanently changes the teenage brain. From a brain chemistry perspective, what, what does marijuana do to, to the young developing brain? Right. What they're going through, it's called, it's called neural pruning. What happens is at age 11, we have a huge number of synapses, all these connections. And then during the teenage year, we specialize. So what the brain says is, what are we using and what aren't we using? And it gets rid of what we're not using, and it strengthens what we do use. And that's why if you memorize a poem in your teenage years, you will still have it at age 60, which I can, I can tell you. Um, and the thing is, but marijuana imitates the neurotransmitters that run this whole process. And so people who smoke pot in their teenage years will do things, the brain will do things that it shouldn't do, that aren't good. It'll have loose ends that go nowhere. And so people who smoke pot in their teenage years have a certain, I'm going to say this because I have it, a certain permanent spaciness. Not huge, but it's there. I knew when I quit smoking pot that my thinking was not as clear and as incisive as it had been before. And I thought, oh, it just has to get out of my system. But no, that's not what happened. What happened is I permanently altered the microstructure of my brain. And that's what, every, you know, we've got about 4 million kids using marijuana, and that's what they're doing. In the book, you, you run through a list of, of myths that I'm, I'm sure some of them will probably be familiar with, with, with the listeners. What are some of the most popular misunderstandings about marijuana that's used in effect wow. on the body? Well, it's not so much the effect on the body. The biggest misunderstanding is the idea that people are in jail or prison. And the last Democratic debate was crazy because Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton both got three and four Pinocchios for the things that they said. Glenn <laughs> Kessler just said it was, those are outright lies that they said. They said that people are in prison for marijuana. It's simply not happening. The marijuana lobby has made this whole thing about that it's punishment. But law enforcement figured this out a long time ago, that drug users are not the people we want to punish. We use drug laws to get drug users into treatment. That's the main thing that we do with drug laws today. And I've worked in prison, and almost all the people who are in prison for drug crimes are there for trafficking. Uh, very few are in for possession. They all did something really extreme. That is by far the biggest myth. And the whole myth that prisons are full of drug users is crazy anyway. Most of the people in prison are there for violent crimes. They don't have a drug charge at all. So that's probably the biggest myth there. Well, in terms of, and I have two teenagers, and, and we've had this discussion, and, and my wife is in the healthcare industry business, so we've had very frank <laughs> discussions with them about, about this. And they've seen per, personally, firsthand with their friends, the, the negative impact that, that marijuana usage and other drug usage, usage can can have how do we with all the with all the, the the popular media and all the messaging that's that's going out how do we connect with adolescents and how do we send them the message that this really is dangerous stuff and maybe not in their best interest to be experimenting with just because their friends are their friends say that it's something they should do yeah 
Well, there's a couple things on that, I mean, three things really. First of all, the number one way to send teenagers the message that the drug is harmful is to keep it illegal. And the evidence on that is really overwhelming. When you look at the Europe, look at all, UNICEF looked at all the European countries plus the U.S. and Canada, and the ones that have loosened their laws and decriminalized it and passed medical marijuana have by far the highest rates of teenage use. And the countries like Sweden and Norway that have kept it strictly illegal, it's really low. It's like 5% in Sweden and Norway. It's like 25% in the United States and Canada. It's a huge difference. So the number one way to send the message to teenagers is to keep it strictly illegal, and I absolutely mean that. Uh, the number two thing is you got to talk to them, and talk to them before they're teenagers. People should be telling their kids, their children, I do not want you using drugs. And I would actually say no drugs, no cigarettes, no alcohol until at least age 18, because we now know that it permanently affects the teenage brain. And if kids hear that before they become teenagers from parents, the, it, it will stick. And I think that's a really important message. I, I talk to a lot of parents who say, oh, my kid would never do that. And I was a really good kid. I was an A student. I was kind of nerdly. I got into drugs. Any kid can get into drugs. So those, that's the biggest thing is that, you know, and, and also I'll tell you, the medical marijuana is the same as legalization. What they found is um, teenage marijuana use skyrocketed between 2005 and 2011. Most of the increase in this country came from just 10 states that had medical marijuana laws because those those what happens is adults are using it and it's accepted. And there's nothing that tells teenagers to try a drug than seeing adults use it. I was going to ask you about that because, as I think I mentioned before we started, that in Illinois yesterday, uh, as we record this, yesterday was the, the first day that the dispensaries in, in the state were allowed to actually begin selling marijuana for medicinal purposes. And, and it's, a pilot, it's a pilot program. It's not written in, in, in stone. And they have what they say, and if you, legislators in the health care, uh, the state health department says they have what is, um, they think, one of the strangest sets of requirement of any state in the, in the nation that has, that has legalized marijuana for medicinal use in the way they set up with doctor referrals and they've limited the number of chronic diseases and, and on and on. Is there any room for medicinal usage of, of marijuana under any type of circumstance, do you think? Yeah, here, here's the problem with this. The marijuana, all this comes from the marijuana lobby. Like I said, medical groups and patient groups were not the people demanding medical marijuana. It came from people who want to legalize the drug. They have told every state that their law will be the strictest. In the book Marijuana Debunked, I go through and I list all these states and I quote all these state legislators. It happened in Arizona. They said this is going to be the strictest law ever. It happened in Delaware. It happened in Connecticut. It happened in Illinois. It's the exact same thing. Uh, and first of all, they can't all be the strictest. It doesn't work that way. But the thing is, the things that they put in almost always are things that do not really make it that strict. As long as doctors can prescribe it and you can have pot docs, and that's the problem that's happened in every state, is that a handful of doctors realize they can make a ton of money by just handing out marijuana cards, and they set themselves up as marijuana doctors. And as long as there's one indication that they can get passed, they use it. So 90% of all the marijuana patients in the country have pain because you can fake pain and there's no really good test for it. And so the, the strictest in the nation is just its simply not true. As far as does it have any use, extracts for marijuana definitely have use for pain, for nausea, for muscle spasms. Uh, but the thing is, 
you know, extracts from opium have use, but we don't sell opium openly to anybody who wants it. What we do is we try to control it. And the prescription opiates are much more tightly controlled than marijuana is right now. Teenagers will tell us always that marijuana is much easier to get than those prescription pain pills. And so there's still no reason. There are medical uses for extracts of marijuana, but there's no use for medical marijuana laws. There are prescription drugs. There's Marinol. There's Seasonet. Sativex hasn't been approved yet. There's a Pedialex, which is that CBD that people say they're going to Colorado from. Well, you can get that in any state through a special FDA program. There's no need to go to Colorado. So there is no need for medical marijuana laws. When they had this whole discussion, nobody would ever discuss the fact that there's prescription cannabinoids that do exactly what marijuana does. That just never seemed to get mentioned. So this whole thing has been pushed by the marijuana lobby. They, told, they announced this 20 years ago that they were going to push medical marijuana first. Once people got used to it, they were going to go for legalization. It's exactly what they're doing. Is to, and it still brings me back to my to my question that I've asked just about everyone in related and even tangentially in, in, to this discussion is that it's still a Schedule One narcotic. Why doesn't the DEA just clamp down on it? Is there a political motivation for why medical marijuana and, and the recreational use of marijuana is being allowed to, to advance? This is hugely political, and I actually blame both parties. Um, when Barack Obama and Joe Biden first got into office, they cracked down on medical marijuana harder than anyone had. You know, Rolling Stone had this article saying they're much tougher than George Bush ever was. They started going after these huge dispensaries and grow operations that they knew were diverting it to recreational use, and it was going to teenagers. And they started arresting people. They started telling landlords that you can't rent to marijuana dispensaries. This is illegal. And they, they brought the full weight of the federal government against this. And they got a huge pushback from the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, and they got zero support from Republicans. I mean, nobody said a word. Because 20, 30 years ago, keeping kids off drugs was a bipartisan issue. Today with politics, nothing is bipartisan. And so that is a, a big part of the reason. This has been, and you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I mean, I'm a liberal Democrat. Um, and I'm horrified. My party has pretty much been taken over by the marijuana lobby. I mean, they, they, everybody I talk to, not everybody, but people who are actually party members and active all seem to be pro-legalization. And they don't really have good arguments. And this whole thing, it's become, it's very political. But a big part of the reason is this partisan divide. We, you know, it used to be a bipartisan issue, and you just can't get bipartisan about it anymore. I wanted to ask you about something else, that, see what your experience has been. I, I talked with a geneticist in, in Colorado um, oh, a year or so ago as they were starting to look at the genome mapping and that kind of thing. And one of the things that he said that, that kind of surprised me, but uh, is that the the potency of marijuana that's available today is much higher than it was even 10 or, or 15 years ago. Is that something you've seen or, or a trend that, that, that you've heard that, that today's marijuana is, is much more potent than, than maybe what uh, a previous generation was, was used to? Yeah, it's, it's way, way, way more potent. Um, it's almost to the point that it's a different drug. Although I always laugh at people. I work with these folks, and I keep saying, that's a Republican argument. You know, they, they try to scare people away by saying it's more potent. I said, you know, that would make me want to use it. It doesn't scare me away. So for parents, it might scare them. And, you know, for, for Republicans, it tends to scare them. But for the rest of us, I don't think it does. I, I want to go back to this issue 
um, about the politicians. You know, Chris Christie is, I think, the only person running for president right now who has said that he would shut down all of these uh, marijuana laws, which any president could do. And even in the Republican Party, there's not a lot of support for that. And a big part thing that's going on is that it's not just George Soros, who funds a lot of Democratic things, who's pro-legalization. The Koch brothers are staunch libertarians, and they're pro-legalization. And so what most Republican presidential candidates are saying is they would leave it up to the states. There's only a few people, uh, Rubio, Christie, and weirdly enough, Ben Carson, who are saying that they would that they would overturn all these state laws, which the federal government has the right to do and I actually think should do. Over your experience in, in, in working with different populations, you mentioned you work with in, in prisons with prison populations, is it been a constant flow or have you seen an increase in, in addiction, specifically marijuana-related addictions? What I'm seeing in what I've seen in prison, and, and they're seeing this with the uh, the RESTI drug abuse monitoring pro- program, is that most criminals now use marijuana. Seventy-five um, percent of all people arrested test positive for some illegal drug. I wish they tested alcohol as well too. I think it would be even higher, but fifty percent of them test positive for marijuana. So it's and it's usually not marijuana alone, but marijuana is really really involved. And so the people I see in prison, uh, most of them have substance abuse problems, and most of them marijuana is one of the drugs. It's uh, amongst teenagers. It's become. It's kind of. It used to be alcohol was the default drug, and now it's marijuana. And you know, I would never say one drug is better than the other because there's ways that each drug is worse. Uh, marijuana. You know, it just. It, I can't say it breaks my heart, but it just saddens me. Every time I talk to somebody, I treat heroin addicts, and they come in, and they're 20, 21. They've been smoking pot since age 12. It's too late to do anything about what that's going to do to their brain development. We can treat their heroin addiction, but marijuana use has to be prevented. And I think the only way to prevent it is to make it strictly illegal. The legalization movement, obviously, is 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 very much forefront on, on a number of in a number of different arenas as, as, as we've talked about what what do you think is eventually going to happen and, and and is there a tipping point somewhere where that will change the the tone of, of this discussion well the whole marijuana thing should be looked at in terms of uh, billionaires basically running the political process in this country and one of the upsetting things to me is you know, Bernie Sanders has been running on this whole issue, and yet he's now completely siding with uh, the marijuana billionaires. And really, George Soros and Peter Lewis, two billionaires, are responsible for pretty much, you know, and the organizations they founded are responsible for every medical marijuana and legalization law we have. And so as long as we have a system where people with a huge amount of money run the political process, we're going to end up legalizing, and we're going to have uh, this partisan politics and the same sort of fights we're having now. This is really just a symptom of the huge amount of money in politics. One, th- one other thing that, that uh, uh, I wanted to, to, to ask you about that we've seen in, in, in Illinois at the, at the state level, and it's simply been because of our budget impasse mm-hmm. in our state, but that has now filtered down to mental health and addiction treatments at the lowest level, grassroots level now, where that's we're not seeing 
that happen because the, we're seeing that stop because the funding right now is 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 not flowing flowing through. On a national level, in terms of of what do you want to call it, the war on drugs or or in treating drug addiction, are we getting the treatment to the people that need it, or has the focus on on treatment not maybe there as much as it as it has or once once was? Yeah, I'm going to bring it back to the same thing. Um, I really think the, the biggest problem is untreated substance abuse. I mean, I see the people in jail and prison, and they are basically untreated substance abusers. You know, they've never had any treatment. And the thing is, we should be using really strict laws, like drug courts do, to get these people into treatment. About I, I, When I was in residency, I looked at this, and 40% of my patients had substance abuse problems, and another 30% were family members. So most of mental health is driven by substance abuse problems, and we need to treat it. And the best way to get these people into treatment is with coercion. People, people do not go into treatment on their own. They don't, you know, at AA they say, people are always saying, oh, I didn't wake up one morning and say, gosh, it's a beautiful day. I think I'll get sober. They get clean and sober when something really forces them to. And there's nothing like the criminal justice system. So we should actually be maintaining really strict drug laws, and we should be using all of our laws, the violent crime laws, the property crime laws, to screen every single criminal, everybody who's broken a law for substance abuse, and get them into treatment and keep them there. That would have a major effect. You know, what I like to say is it's two-thirds of all the people in prison are substance abusers. And if two-thirds of all the people in prison had an infectious disease, everybody would get an antibiotic. But we seem to just not treat this problem. And so the place it's... Yeah, we do need, you know, I, I, I'm in Arizona, which is kind of a, you know, a state that doesn't pay very well for anything. And so we certainly need more treatment. But the place where we can be most effective with treatment is in the criminal justice system. And instead, right now, we have people saying, oh, we should offer people treatment out, to, you know, and, and get rid of the criminal justice part of it. And all of us who work in the substance abuse field are saying, no, that's the way you get people into treatment. That's Dr. Ed Gogek an addiction psychiatrist. His new book is Marijuana Debunked, a handbook for parents, pundits, and politicians who want to know the case against legalization. In the Author's Voice is a listener-supported service of WSIU. I'm Jeff Williams.